there were all these myths, I think, in our mind about what a quote-unquote successful business was. And I think had I known, I might have just been like, oh, small is beautiful. Like if we can just have enough spending money and have a small studio and it's more or less self-sustaining, we're paying ourselves a small wage, like that's awesome. Sabrina Moyle is the CEO of Hello Lucky, an award-winning letterpress greeting card and design studio. You can find her online at Hello Lucky Cards. From humble beginnings making greeting cards to an expanded line including textiles, bedding, books, ceramics, socks, custom photo albums, and children's books, Sabrina and her business partner and sister Eunice have stayed true to their mission to spread joy, fun, and kindness. Sabrina serves on the board of The Mosaic Project. She's a published author and is an advocate for and practitioner of mindful parenting. She invited me into her home office in San Francisco to record this conversation. You're listening to This Guy's Legit. Well, thank you, Sabrina, so much for making time to sit with me today. You are so welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here. So I want to hear a little bit about what you were like as a child. Um, You and your sister work together. You've built this company together, um, each leveraging your own strengths. I want to hear a little bit about you as a kid and then how you work together. Sure. Um, So as a kid, I was very sweet. Um, My parents tell me that as a baby, I smiled all the time. I was very bright-eyed and smiling at the world. And I do think that that is my inner temperament and orientation in general. It's pretty peaceful and positive. Um, That said, growing up, um, I grew up in a family where my mom is Chinese and my dad is um, from Minnesota, American, um, white. And so it was a biracial family, which had a fair amount of conflict in it because of that, because of just racial, you know, just just cultural tensions in the way that my mother would want to raise us versus my dad, et cetera. Um, And we, my dad was in the foreign service. And so we grew up moving every two to three years, which was both a wonderful gift in that I learned to be super resilient and adapt to anything, but also a real challenge in terms of always moving and having to make new friends and being uprooted. Um, and so as a child, when I was young, I was, I, st- I think I started out pretty peaceful, but then I also was quite shy and, um, very, um, I've always been very sensitive, um, pretty creative. My sister's very creative. So from a very young age, we would kind of create stuff and build our own dollhouses and make our own clothes. And we were always in kind of a play fantasy land together. We even early on, like wrote children's books together, or, like brainstorm children's books, like, you know, together, which is funny because that's what we do now. Um, but because of moving around, I think in part, we were exposed to so many cultures. We often didn't find ourselves with just each other and no friends because we were in a new place, you know, and our dad is kind of a fifties dad. Our mom was crafty, but like not a super nurturing mom. So like in those days, like it was a different generation, like parents just kind of with benign neglect in the best way, you know, because we would just play with each other. So, so as a kid, I would say I was like very sensitive. I was pretty shy. I was creative. I was quite sweet. I was a really good student, you know, I really loved to kind of learn and that sort of thing. But, um, but I was, I was also just a bit of a, um, kind of just a good kid, you know, kind of a people pleaser. Yeah. And, and when you were a kid, did you have a sense of what you would do as an adult? Like, was that a, was that a conversation that would happen around the dinner table? Like, what are you going to be? And, and what are, what's your job going to be? No, that was not a conversation. Um, my mom was a homemaker, and I feel like there was, um, it was not a conversation in both a good and a bad way. In a good way, in the sense that my parents didn't put expectations on us. They just, it was just kind of understood that you work work hard, you know. Um, from my mom's example, it was kind of understood that I would find a good husband. <laughs> that was kind of her MO, pretty traditional Chinese. But she was also really fearless. So I never got the message that I needed to, do or be anything in order to be a worthwhile person, but I also never got um, the message that um, that I wasn't capable, you know. So it was like a very neutral um, upbringing, and my parents just work really hard, and by example, we're just really good people. Um, so um, yeah, I don't feel like there was a huge amount. I think that if anything, the thing that I had to overcome was. Um, you know, the sort of fifties mentality of our parents that, you know, you, you, you find a husband, you know, and I think that on some subconscious level kind of kept me from realizing, oh, I can start a business, you know, until, you know, until a little later and I figured it out on my own and that was great. You know, how are you different as a parent? Oh, so than your experience. Was? Oh, so different. Um, in both good and bad ways, I'm sure. Um, 
different in that I am very, I think one of the key things that I believe about um, raising children is that it is an opportunity to break intergenerational cycles of trauma, you know, that are inadvertent and that are universal. And so um, I feel like a con- as a parent, I want to be conscious of being neutral, loving my kids unconditionally, giving them that unconditional positive regard, working on myself first and foremost so that I can model self-sufficient and healthy behaviors and patterns of mind and patterns of being, um, and then teaching my kids explicitly the tools that they need in order to manage, for example, their thoughts. Like if they're thinking, oh, I'm terrible or I suck at this or I'm no good or I'm not cool or whatever it is. I have twins now who are nine and I have a six-year-old. Um, is teaching them explicitly, you know, you're not those thoughts, you can question those thoughts, and you don't need anybody's love or approval. You know, you have my unconditional love, but you are worthy, irrespective of what I think of you and say of you, about you, what anybody says. So to me, that's like the key role. My key role as a parent is to provide that unconditional positive attachment and regard, but also to teach the tools for self-sufficiency, emotional, mental self-sufficiency. And I think that's very different. Like I think in my parents' day and age, they didn't know those tools. Like that research hadn't been done. There weren't a lot of resources. So I think they did their best to model that, but they didn't, they stopped short of being able to teach the tools. So for example, as I was growing up, like my parents were, were there for me. They were very solid and very secure family, despite all of our moving around in, in that I always knew that I was loved. Um, but when I was having trouble, there wasn't a lot of empathy. There wasn't a lot of, you know, well, here's how you can deal with that. That's not true. Or that thought is just not correct. Here's how you can unwind it. It's just a thought, you know, all the stuff that we now know. Instead, it was more like just buck up or, you know, stop thinking so much. So, you know, our parents were on the right track, but they didn't have the nuance of all the tools that you can explicitly teach that we now know. So, so that's how I'm different from my parents. I think similar in some ways and just trying to be super solid for my kids, but um, different in that I'm trying to teach them. And it's a process, you know, it's certainly not perfect and I mess up all the time, but, uh, but I feel like that's, the, that's my aim as a parent. How did you develop the language around that? How did you develop the tools and knowledge to even have a, a mission as a parent? Um, I did a lot of reading and I did a lot of work on myself, so... When my twins were born about nine years ago, I, I was an entrepreneur. You know, I, I, I still had Hello Lucky, but it was at this place where it was um, not sustainable financially. We were growing, but we were bleeding cash because we were trying to do a whole e-com business, which was not what we were intended to do, not my strong suit. Um, and um, I just realized, you know, that I had all this unfinished business, <laughs> that I just had these kids, and it was my job to show up for them and to be the best model that I could be for them. Um, and as a result, that I needed to take care of all this business in my work life and in my personal life. I had a pretty challenging relationship with my mom at the time. You know, I unfinished business with my own parents at the time. And so I just started delving into it and being like, okay, I got to get to the bottom of all this so that I don't pass this these bad habits or tendencies on to my kids. I want to be super present with them and give them the best. You know, and so I started reading, um, I think it started out with like John Kabat-Zinn and I don't know how much you've read of all this like stuff, but like really he's like the father of mindfulness. So I read some of his, his work. Um, I'd always dabbled in meditation and yoga and really enjoyed it, but I started to do that more intentionally. Um, I started just reading a lot of parenting books more around kind of conscious parenting. So in a way, sort of going down a little bit of a spiritual path, like some books that you would consider to be new agey, like Eckhart Tolle or, you know, sort of like the law of attraction, like th- things like that eventually kind of came my way. Um, and, um, and it's just, and it's an ongoing process, you know, of continuing to learn and understand these tools. Like I read a book about, um, you know, um, the relationship between addiction and shame, you know, just all these great resources that are out there, you know, that was like one of the underlying AA sort of, you know, manifestos or like in a book that informs the research of which informs a lot of AA programs. But I just got really curious about how do you become a self-actualized person, you know, because I wanted to be as as self-actualized as possible so that my kids are born so impressionable and innocent and also so attached to us. Like they feel what we feel, especially when they're infants. And there's no way to hide things from them. So if you've got baggage or crap that you're not dealing with, they're going to sense it and feel it and it's going to impact them. So I started becoming aware of that and just, it's been an ongoing um, process of just looking at that and making it a priority, frankly, in my reading every night before I go to bed. I usually read something spiritual or psychological that, that helps me better understand 
these these issues. What a gift to your children. <laughs> My gosh. When what a gift to yourself. I'm yeah. so it makes me feel just like so grateful for the world that that these books are in it and oh, that yeah. people are making use of them. Totally. Yeah, I, in my like, I tell my parents this. Like, I feel like in this day and age, there's no excuse to not become a self-actualized person. In mm-hmm. a way, I mean, obviously, there's, you know, there are people who are dealing with addiction or chemical imbalances. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of challenges that, be, and obviously, if you're in a really challenging situation with abuse or poverty or whatever, it can be incredibly fucking difficult to like, you know, rise above that and to kind of de- disentangle yourself. So it's not to say that it's easy. It's hard work, no matter where you are, but. The resources are out there if you um, are, are desperate enough <laughs> like, to make it a priority. And honestly, like, I feel like to some extent I kind of reached, I was like at this place where I was like, I'm, I'm desperate. Like I'm ready. Like I felt like at the time my business was failing. I just had these children and I had a very strange relationship with my mother. And I was like, I don't want to recreate this with my own kids. How do I avoid this? It felt like a real, like, like a bottom that I needed to just like, it just forced me to just like be like, okay, I'm willing to try anything. I'm willing to read anything to, to kind of help work my way out of these old patterns that are just not serving me. Like I'm not happy, you know, and I want to be a happy and, um, you know, sort of peaceful person for my kids. So I think to some extent it's different for every person, but sometimes you have to reach a like wake up call moment to be like, okay, I'm going to take advantage of all these resources that are out there. Cause they're all out there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Wow. Okay. So, so many things I want to follow up on. Um, let's talk about business for a yes. minute. You, you, described your business being in like this very unwieldy place. It was like you were reaching in the wrong direction. You were bleeding financially. You were sort of too big to be sustainable for, for what the business sort of should have been. Right. So how did you change that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the way we changed it, so where we were when it was kind of flailing, well, I'll describe the arc a little bit because I think it's really interesting from a decision-making perspective, to think about how we make choices. And we're inevitably going to make mistakes. So, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty, but it's always interesting to me to think back to the logic. So we started out with um, greeting cards, just greeting cards, because my sister um, was had come here to San Francisco in the dot-com boom of the late 90s, and then it busted, and she got laid off from her web design job. So she was she had some pets who she needed to feed, and she was working at a pet, pet food store. Um, to get some free dog food, and they needed cards, so she designed some cards for them. They were fantastic, and she, Kate's Paper bought like $1,500 worth. So suddenly it was like, oh, well, we can have a card business. You know, I was I just graduated from business school at the time, and I was working as a nonprofit strategy consultant, but I knew, like, the whole reason I went to business school was to bring the arts and business together. And But because I graduated in 02 and there are no jobs, I didn't have a luxury of trying to find a creative job coming out of business school. I went down the nonprofit path instead because I'm passionate about it, but also because it was a, the job that I could get. Um, and so I knew that. Um, and so we started out with greeting cards. But the same year that we started was the year that Facebook launched. And so <laughs> we were kind of like, okay, what does social media mean for sending cards? Are people even going to send cards? So we started down the path of manufacturing our own cards, but very quickly got kind of scared about what social media would mean for this. And also we you have to sell a shit ton of cards in order to make a living at it. And so we got kind of scared about that. And we're like, okay, well, what can we do that people will, that will not become digitized? And we thought, well, birth announcements and wedding invitations. So we started doing custom birth announcements and wedding invitations. And at the time, e-com was not a thing. And people bought those things through retail stores. They would go into a store, look at an album of samples, pick out their ink colors and all that stuff, place the order through the store, and then they'd get their order a couple weeks later in the mail. And that order would go to the manufacturer, i.e. us, who would produce this custom project for 50% of the retail price, very low margin, so also a scale business, you know, but we kind of were just figuring out, we're just doing what was done in the world at that point, you know, and so we started doing that and realized very quickly it was a scale business with extremely low margins and we we're not going to make money doing it, um, and that we could see that e-commerce was going to be the way that this was all going to go. So we're like, okay, you know, now let's let's go into e-commerce. And so we started developing our first e-commerce site and then realized that it's really hard for people to pay high-end prices for letterpress when they're, they're looking at a digital interface and they can't touch and feel. And this was about the time of like two, 2007 or so, the financial crisis was about to hit. And so we also then realized, you know, my husband is an economist, works in finance. He's like, look, there's a crisis coming. You guys have to find 
a product that is cheaper for people to be able to afford. Otherwise, you're going to get hit really hard. So then, luckily, it was the technology was such that we could do digital printing. So we went into digital printing, found a digital printing partner who was willing to print on really high-end, 100% cotton paper. So it would still look a lot like letterpress and coordinate with our letterpress product, but be you know a lot cheaper. And so we developed our, our tech site. So it was like this series of decisions that were made in response to market changes and largely our fear of failure, you know, our fear of what might happen because of the financial crisis, yada, yada. Instead of, you know, looking at like, well, I don't know, it's hard to say, it's hard to second guess it. I feel like those are all decisions that were very logical at the time. Um, but in retrospect, you know, our core, what we've learned now is that our core competency is really creative, is design and content, you know, and so had we maybe started small and not tried to scale up, because we also had a lot of stories in our heads about you have to have this hockey stick, you have to scale up, you have to, you know, potentially raise money, which we never ended up doing. But there were all these myths, I think, in our mind about what a quote unquote successful business was. And I think had I known, I might have just been like, oh, small is beautiful. Like if we can just have enough spending money and have a small studio and it's more or less self-sustaining, we're paying ourselves a small wage, like that's awesome. You know, like if I'd had that more as my goal early on, I think that would have changed our trajectory a little bit, but we kind of were chasing this scale dream. Um, and so when I hit this sort of rock bottom moment was that we had started doing that and timing is really important too. You know, we, we launched our econ business not knowing that Minted was on the verge of raising like $60 million. Like, so we thought this small niche, like we could carve out a niche for ourselves and we'd be fine because we had a lot of loyal customers, we worked with a lot of wedding planners in the Bay Area, it's mostly local. We thought we'd be fine, but then we realized like we can't compete with this giant VC funded <laughs> companies like that that are also crowdsourcing all the creative content so that they're constantly put, churning out new stuff. Like it is really hard to keep, to sustain in that environment. Plus with technology, there's always constant investment required. And so we just were bleeding cash from the standpoint of constantly investing in this, it's e interface, because also we had to build it from scratch, like the whole web to print interface, you know, we had to build, we had to build the whole online customization interface, hire developers. It was just this path that was not our core, like who we are, you know? And so it was really, by the time I kind of hit this moment, I was like, okay, this is not what we enjoy doing. We're not having fun. We're not making money. And so we basically just laid off our whole staff. We were like, I was like, okay, what do we do? We either shut down the business or we go back to our roots, which is greeting cards, which ironically, we've been ignoring our wholesale greeting card business this whole time. And what turned out is that as people have more and more social media relationships, they have more relationships they want to maintain. So they're sending more cards, especially like the high-end niche cards. So this whole time we were ignoring our initial business and it kept growing and growing and growing steadily with like almost no effort from our part. Wow. It's fascinating. Like the thing that you're struggling so hard to do ends up being the thing that you're not meant to do. And the thing that's kind of naturally growing on its own organically ends up being the thing that like, oh, maybe we should just go with the flow there and like leverage our successes, you know? Um, so that was really, really interesting. So we ended up um, deciding, okay, either we're shut down our business or we find a way to do the greeting card sustainably. And what we decided was we um, could partner with another letterpress company. In our case, it was Egg Press in Portland. We'd known the founder for years. She had just moved into a new space where she had excess capacity and she was looking for a way to grow sustainably as well. So she was like, oh, well, why don't I use my capacity to print your line? And I'll license like your designs from you and I'll, she, she does all the printing and distribu distribution for us and all we do is the creative content development. So we were able to lay off our staff and so, you know, at least one of whom got a job up in Egg Press, sell all of our equipment, shut down our facility, you know, get rid of all of our overhead and then go to working from home. And then at that point, we started looking for a licensing agent, found a licensing agent. And now where we are is we've been building this whole licensing business, a brand basically focusing on um, using our licensing agent to introduce us to manufacturing partners in a whole array of categories, publishing, ceramics, bedding, you know, so we're making, um, the, the business is far more enjoyable and sustainable than it's ever been. And it's because we're focusing on what we love to do and that we're naturally good at doing and we're outsourcing everything else. <laughs> and that's been such a great lesson. Yeah. Wow. So that's, that's where we are at, but yes. Wow. Yeah. I... I'm fascinated by that. That's crazy. I think that I think that what you have touched on is so important for people to hear. If it's hard, from hard to impossible, it's probably not right. Exactly. 
But I, you know, I, like you said, you know, you tell yourself a story. Well, I went to business school. It's supposed to be this hockey stick. Yes. It's supposed to be this way. Yes. But there isn't a formula for no. business. There isn't a formula Correct. for entrepreneurship. And Correct. That, like, that's the definition of entrepreneurship is like, there is no, I mean, that's not the definition, but by yeah. definition, it means you're starting something that doesn't yes. exist. Yes. So you have to make your, you have to follow your own path. Yes. And you have to remain really aware. Yes. And realistic about yeah. what the market is telling you. And the feedback that you're getting. And, you know, honestly, like looking for signs, you know, like sometimes <laughs> about what it is that you're supposed to be doing. Because I think where we get stuck and where people, you know, stay in businesses that are failing for too long or relationships that are failing or whatever it is that's failing for too long is when they get attached to a particular story of how it has to be and that they need to control it and that they need to force that outcome. But the reality is like starting a business, there's so many forces that are out of your control, like timing, serendipity, you know, the right product at the right time, the right idea at the right time. There's definitely luck involved. There's some effort involved, but it just, there's just so, it, it's really an art. And so to think that you can control the outcome and drive it, um, you know, obviously you can do everything within your control, but, and, and ideally having a work process and a partner and a relationship with, I think a, a relationship with a business partner or founder is really important and having something that's super productive and functional is key. Um, but if you have that process in place, a process for responding to the environment, coming up with new ideas, pivoting, adjusting, you know, then eventually, at least what I've experienced is that eventually opportunities and the right ideas kind of emerge and you, you stumble upon them, you see them, and then you're positioned to take advantage of them, but you can't force them into existence. How did you balance that with your sister? Was one of you driving the the change and was and one of you was like along for the ride or were you discussing it together? How did you there's two of you, it's not just you. Yeah. So how did you um how are you able to come to so many difficult especially with laying off your staff? Like that's a that's a that's a hard choice to make. Yeah. How did you make those choices yeah. together? Well, so my sister generally, um, she's, she is uh, an illustrator first and foremost, and I'm more of a strategist kind of business person, and I write, and I'm creative as well, but she's mostly, like, she likes to describe her job as drawing ducks in inner tubes. Like, that's kind of what she does, yet she's brilliant, you know, at thinking about business and, like, what to do. So what's interesting is that, so she often just let me call the shots or take the lead on making business decisions and telling her what I thought was the right decision at that time. And she generally was like, yeah, I think that's right. That said, you know, early on, she was kind of, you know, she was kind of like, well, why are we doing, you know, like when we were just really investing so much money in the tech piece, I think she could see early on that that was probably not a good idea. Like that sure, or, you know, whatever. I mean, we learned so much from it. I don't regret it at all, but she could, I think she could see that this was like, she was kind of along for the ride in this, in in a way that where she knew that it was not going to work out, but she was, she kind of went along with it anyway. Um, which I think was fine. I feel like we had to sort of try it in order to learn the lessons we were intended to learn from that. But, um, but I would say our relationship is one where, you know, she, um, and, and after that lesson, I, I've become much more, um, uh, like much less, not to say that I was unilateral, but much, much more interested in seeking her opinion about stuff, you know, and making sure that we're jointly making decisions, you know, cause I think, um, her instincts are fantastic and it's not like, I, I have to keep her from devolving, you know, responsibility to me. And I have to keep her, I have to, I have to pull out her opinion to make sure that we're taking it into account. Cause it's really, really smart. Um, you know, and so that's been the process, but, um, we've never had, you know, generally we agree with each other and, um, we don't really have conflict, um, cause I think we both are really committed to, um, being pretty ego free, like just doing whatever's needed for the business, like whatever we think the business needs or our client needs or our project needs, we just do it, you know, and, um, we kind of pride ourselves in that. So that I think flows into the decision-making. So when you were making your, when you sort of hit that rock bottom and you were yeah. getting ready to pivot, um, how did you sort of come back from that financial hit? Well, um, slowly. I mean, you know, the way that we funded our business was through friends and family, predominantly my husband who works in finance and my sister's husband who worked in tech. Um, and so we just, I mean, luckily we have very supportive spouses, both financially and emotionally, you know, so they 
we're always like my husband's a professional investor. So he's like, okay, you know, when you make an investment in a startup, you expect to lose your money. So don't worry about it. Like, you know, don't, there's no guilt. There's no shame. It's just you that businesses are very, very risky. And so when you take money for a business, there's no guilt when you lose the money because that's the reality of investing in a small business. So no big deal. So we were really lucky in that. So basically we just pivoted and started working from home and pretty soon we were, you know, almost immediately we were cash flow positive and, you know, starting to pay ourselves. Like it, it was great, you know, so we just left our losses for what they were. You know, we still carry forward those losses on our books and, you know, eventually one day I'll pay my husband back, you know, <laughs> I, but there's no, um, there's no regret and no emotional baggage associated with it, which I think is one of the hardest things. I think one of the hardest things about losing money as an entrepreneur, because all businesses lose money in the beginning. And then you sort of are wondering like, oh my gosh, how long am I going to be losing money? When am I going to get into the black? And then especially if you have outside money, whether it's friends or families or family or investors, like the guilt and the shame associated with that um, can be really debilitating and can, can keep you from thinking clearly. So um, somehow just understanding, like taking away the personal attachment to the money and understanding it's just money. Like it's just energy that you invest in things that you like or love and care about and you don't get attached to it because it'll, it gets just a flow of energy, like light or whatever, you know, it's like it comes and it goes. So having that type of a kind of pretty um, detached, healthily detached attitude towards money, I think is really helpful in trying to, in, in understanding like when to get out of something, you know, and, and just being able to move on if you've made a mistake, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's really hard, but it's one of the big, I feel like one of the biggest lessons I've learned as being an entrepreneur is just not to feel ashamed when you fail, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge believer in that. I think if you, you like failure leads to success, like how else are you supposed to learn? Yeah. You know, you learn a lot more from when you mess it up than you do from when you get it right. Yes. And the only, I mean, I feel like somebody said like the only insanity is if you're repeating the same failures over and over again, then you've got issues. Yes. But if you're learning from it, then that's okay. You know, and not to say that you should actively seek to fail, but like, but when you are trying your best and you've put your best into the process and it doesn't work out, then it wasn't meant to be and you need to try something else. It's just a sign that you need to try something else. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important uh, just to highlight how the wisdom of your husband, which was among many things, people who invest in a small business should not be expecting to make a return. If you're investing in someone's business, you need to, you need to, or giving a loan to a friend or family, like you need to treat it like it's a gift and you, you can't be attaching requirements to it. You can't be checking in about it. Um, it's either going to come back to you or it's not, but if you give that gift with strings or if you give that with expectations, that's going to tarnish the relationship. So I think the sort of bigger lesson is don't give it away if you don't have it to give. Exactly. I think, um, you know, Kickstarter campaigns and microloans, those are all really, really sort of great ways to, to give a gift um, because you're not really expecting a whole lot back. Like maybe you pick the, you know, $250 Kickstarter level, which is going to get you, you know, you'll get to be the first one at the screening or whatever it is. And, and that's really great. Um, because sometimes that's not even going to happen, but the intention is there. I don't know. What do you think about giving money with strings attached? Oh, definitely a bad idea. Um, especially if it's from friends or family, I feel like often there is, um, emotional or psychological baggage that, you know, is attached that is really unhealthy for the entrepreneur. Um, so I feel very, again, very lucky that my husband and my sister's husband were not, using, you know, for one thing I never did was take money from my parents. I feel like that's a really, unless you have an incredibly healthy relationship with your parents, like there's just generally too much baggage there, um, where you feel like you need to measure up in some way or prove something or, you know, that is not related to the business to the person who's investing. And that's just, just so dangerous because you need to maintain, um, neutrality, um, when you're trying to run a business, you know, you're really, you really need to be detached and, and rational and neutral and you can't be driven by subconscious, you know, psychological or emotional, um, forces. Um, so, you know, I think, um, obviously you should have a contract and have terms. Like if the company does well, you want to make sure that you're getting your fair share. Um, so there, you know, that is important to have that all 
laid out in, in, in clear, concise legal language, um, you know, because relationships go bad, you know, and so you want to make sure that that is, you're protected. Mm -hmm. Um, but other than that, yeah, I think that you, if you're giving a, yeah, if you're investing in a company, it does need to be, um, you know, without, without strings attached. And that's a hard lesson to learn because I think once somebody gets invested either in money or say their time, like advising or whatever, they start getting attached to the outcome and it becomes, uh, it becomes difficult because it becomes, the focus becomes more about the relationship between the investor and the founder. And, and that takes up, that takes yeah. valuable emotional energy away exactly. from pursuing the business. Exactly. But it's really natural. It's, it's hard. Yeah. 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 So how do you recharge? How do you stay inspired when everything is so intertwined yeah. and you're working with your family, you're working in your family home, you know, yeah. how do you make space for yourself? Yeah. I meditate. So I meditate every morning generally for at least like 30 minutes in the morning and in the evening. Do you do that before the kids get up? I do that before the kids get up. So it's, it, it is varied. I've taken lots of different meditation classes. So my practice has varied depending on, um, you know, where I'm at. But right now I listen to a guided meditation on, um, on my iPod, you know, that takes me through like a 30 to 40 minute meditation in the morning and evening. Um, that's the key way. And then, um, you know, I do exercise a couple times a week, um, and part of my exercise is like doing a deep breathing practice. Um, and then when I can, I try to get a massage. It doesn't happen very often, but I personally find um, that hands-on sort of bodily work because, you know, all of our, everything's interconnected within our bodies, right? So our mind and our body. And so things get, when things are stuck, they get stuck in my body in terms of back pain. Like if I'm stuck in some dynamic, like I feel it in my body. Like I had sciatica earlier this year and I had, you know, sometimes I get shoulder pain if I'm too stressed out about something, you know, or like I'm, I'm just going, going, going. And I, you know, it shows up, my body tells me when I need to slow down. So yeah. it's important to pay attention to that. Otherwise I'll end up grind, everything will grind to a halt. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I, that's what I do. Yeah. And then, as I mentioned earlier, reading is really important to me, just like continuously maintaining my focus and sharpening my focus on, um, my own habits of mind and how to maintain, uh, us like the, the ideal is to be constantly in a state of peace, neutrality, calm, and clarity throughout the entire day. And, you know, and that's, that's something that I'm always working towards. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty ambitious <laughs> stasis. My God. That's the goal. Yeah. That's the goal is okay. to always be able to come back to that. Like in basically if I were able to live life in a constant meditative state like that, that's my aim. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> constant meditative slash creative state. Like yeah. for me, the, the state of being in a creative flow is the same as the state of being in meditation. Like I get most of my creative ideas when I'm meditating. Mm-hmm. So, um, so to me, it's productive time. Totally. I'm both taking care of myself and I'm doing work. Totally. You're sort of, you're opening the portal Correct. to the universe Correct. And to see what the messages are for, Correct. for you. Correct. Um, Big fan of all the things you said, particularly massage and physical therapy. I think I think that you are spot on about uh, challenges like emotional traumas lodging themselves in the body, um, and I think that there's so much work that can be done on our physical body. But I also think that we're in a weird time in society where it's like. Our culture doesn't value downtime and our cult- culture doesn't really value investing in yourself. And our culture is also still rooted in like a pretty puritanical uh, uh, roots, uh, which is to say that like human touch is so important and yet it's not something that you just go out and do every day. Like you don't hug every person you work with. Maybe you do when you're an entrepreneur because there's also these relationships. It's not like your employee. Um, but I don't know. I think physical touch is so important. I agree. Do you, uh, massage your children? I don't massage them, but I try to give them lots of hugs. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I have occasionally, but I don't make it, it's not a regular practice yeah. with them, but I try to just, yeah, give them tons, snuggles, lots yeah. of snuggles and hugs. Yeah. yeah. I have some friends, especially when I had my little, little when they were babies, who were doing like infant massage yeah. like every night? They were doing this. Baby That's massage amazing. Stuff. I tried that a little bit, but I didn't keep it up. Same. Yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to know how you balance 
your sort of spiritual life, your emotional life, your work life, uh, your, you know, how do you, how do you, um, besides meditation, how do you behave in the world that allows you to keep that sort of Buddha mind? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, it, it really uh, focuses on just being, trying to just be very present at any given time with whatever it is that I'm dealing with. Um, so, you know, there's this, uh, there's this writer and spiritual teacher named Byron Katie who has a book called Loving What Is, which was very influential to me when I was first coming into all these practices because she basically is like, okay, you know, reality is, is essentially God, right? I mean, reality is all there is. And so if you can come into a loving awareness of reality, whatever it is, whether it's your kid screaming, whether it's some problem you have to solve with your business, whether it's back pain, whatever, if you can come to it with just loving acceptance, um, as opposed to having all these thoughts of like, oh, it shouldn't be this way, or I should be doing this, or, oh my gosh, I'm going to fail at that or whatever. Um, then, then you'll be in a, peaceful state and you'll be much more productive and happy and all the rest, you know? And so, um, so I feel like it's a big part of it for me is, is just constantly being in tune with my own mind and where it's at and trying to just stay present and focused and aware, um, of what is right in front of me that I need to take care of, which is partly why I don't, I'm not that good at like keeping lists and like, you know, being really rigid. Cause mm. I do tend to be like, okay, what is it that I need to do now? Okay, what do I need to do now? What do I need to do now? You know, and I just kind of do that. Um, but sometimes that bites me in the ass because I, I think I could probably do a little bit more uh, for, you know, forward planning. And in particular, if the things that I'm not inspired to do, like um, spreadsheets or bookkeeping related matters often fall by the wayside because I'm in this like very, what, what inspires me? You know, like, what should I do next? You know, like Buddha state, you know, which mm-hmm. means that the things that, you know, so I'm, that's one thing I'm really working on is having that loving awareness and like receptivity to all the things that I typically don't re- that don't bring me joy that are yeah. kind of tedious because there's a lot of shit about running a business that's tedious. You know, so how to kind of welcome that in as well instead of ignoring it, I think is also key to being a successful entrepreneur because we have to wear so many hats and you have to try to show up for all of them, like all of it. You have to try to show up for it in a way that is positive and not um, that and productive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you set big goals for yourself? And if so, I'd love it if you would share like a ten-year goal, five-year goal. Yeah, I mean, so right now our business is focused around um, licensing. So I usually, when I set a goal, it's it's a vision for the future where I'm imagining myself, for example. Um, getting a Newbery Award for children's books, you know? <laughs> and like, how would that feel? And I'm like, okay, I'm getting a Newbery Award for children's books. Or I'm, my kids are in college and they're thriving and they're peaceful and I'm productively working on my work still and I'm happy, you know? So my goals tend to be um, not necessarily financial, like I'm going to get to X revenue or I'm going to do X, Y, Z products. It's more like what state do I want to find myself in five years from now? <laughs> And then how can I work towards that so that that, you know, that that arises. So as another example, like we're in the processes process of developing a children's television show right now, which may or may not get purchased and may or may not be successful. But when I think about the goal, my intention is more of an intention than a goal. It's like my intention is I want to be at the Emmys like in five years, you know, like. I'm just going to set that and like, let's work towards that and see what, 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 let's bring our best work to bear here to optimize the chances that that might happen. And, you know, that's kind of, you know, so that's kind of how I think about goals. It's like, I, it's, I don't control how, what the outcome is going to be or necessarily. Um, but I set a big vision for myself of where I want to see myself in five years. And then, and then I, you know, sort of allow things to kind of happen, um, as they will, because for us in licensing, it's like, Deals come and go. Partnerships come and go. It's like it's not a most of it. Beauty of it is that because I'm not in control of manufacturing and distributing my own product anymore, a lot of it is dependent on partners. So I can't, even if I wanted to say in five years, we're going to be in, you know, X store and we're going to be with this partner and da, 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 da. Like there's so much that I can't control about that, that, you know, um, 
I think it, it, it's, it'd be futile. It'd be kind of a, an exercise in, I don't know, it, it, it wouldn't make sense to try to control that outcome. Um, but with our business, like we're really seeking, you know, it's really about like, how can we make our name a household name and have people have very positive associations with our brand? Um, you know, that's, that's kind of the vision that I hold. And then we just go along with every project we pick. It's like, does this align with that vision? You know, does this seem like a good partner for, to, for, to, to actualize that vision? So. What do you look for in a partner? Um, ideally, it's uh, someone who understands our aesthetic and our humor and our general outlook in life, and which is one of like trying to be of service and to bring and to help, you know, to, to, to have, you know, certain, meet ideally certain quality standards to bring products that, that sort of just support people finding their joy, like, you know, just being joyful. And, you know, originally with greeting cards, we didn't necessarily have this explicit intention, but as I became more aware of my, like my vision and mission and purpose in life, I started realizing, oh, the greeting cards are really about helping people connect in their relationships. And connection is like one of the most important things in life, like whether it be with your friends or your family, like staying connected in an authentic way is a really important thing. You know, so our greeting cards do that. And then with the products, it's kind of like, well, what, how can we put products out there that reflect our aesthetic, which is a very joyful and care, somewhat carefree, whimsical, aesthetic so that that can inspire people and then when we choose our partners it's like who's easy to work with and like who gets that this is this is the goal of putting product out there it's not to sell shit it's not to like create landfill it's to bring people joy through your products you know and if they get that and they're coming at it from this joyful place of you know of how they want their customers to feel um, then we generally find that it's a productive partnership um you know and then there's explicit ones where for example we're now working with boon supply which is founded by um Lily Cantor, who started Serena and Lily, and the whole purpose of the business is to give back. So it's a business where um, they create exclusive products that are for home and family to support family togetherness and busy families that things like everything from like, you know, zip pouches that you use in, in your, you know, for packed lunches, for waste-free lunches, or, um, you know, we're developing like a family togetherness kind of conversation kit type of thing, you know, and 40% of the proceeds go to whatever nonprofit you want, but most of it is funding schools. So it's like a, it's like a platform. It's a fundraising platform for schools and nonprofits to be able to allow their supporters to buy quality merchandise that supports family togetherness um, in or, and you know positive causes in order to then in turn support nonprofits. So that's like a no-brainer. Like when we find a business that has like an explicit social purpose like that too, then that's even, that's even better, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously not all, not all businesses are configured that way, nor, do, nor should they be, nor do they have to be because it's hard enough to turn a profit, let alone have a business model that gives back. So we're, that's not a criteria by any means, but when we find people like that, we know that they're aligned with our own um, purpose, you know? How, um, how do you deal with missed opportunities? Have you, have you had big misses that you feel regret around or is it sort of, it's just your path? Yeah, I think it's just our path. Yeah. I don't really, I don't really believe in regret. I feel like, (laughs) I feel like everything happens for a reason. If it wasn't meant to be yours, it wasn't meant to be yours. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like regret is totally a wasted emotion. (laughs) I love that. What do you love the most and what do you love the least about being your own boss? Um... What I love the most is the freedom um, to direct the path of the business and um, to not have to deal with egos, you know, from the standpoint of bosses or a company culture that doesn't align with my values. Um, I'm sure there are companies out there where I could go and be an employee and I would be totally happy, but, um, you know, unfortunately, I do think that in a lot of businesses, especially the bigger and more hierarchical they get, the more people's egos start getting in the way of having a productive work culture because people lack the self-awareness. Um, and that ends up, especially at the leadership level, it can trickle down and affect the whole culture. So for me, just being able to manage um, who I work with and choose who I work with um, so that um, I really, truly believe that I'm doing my best work and I'm not getting distracted by um, time-wasting politics, that's what I love the most. And, um, um, or time-wasting politics or protocols. Sometimes it's something as much as like a form that has to be done a certain way or a 360 performance review that has to be done a certain way or like, 
you know, a certain structure for how you get promoted that causes people to question their self-worth or question the value they're bringing. You know, there's all kinds of structures and policies that do end up needing to be put in place in larger businesses to ensure standards and a certain level of quality and that everyone gets treated equally, you know, but it does backfire, I think, sometimes. It's just the nature of the beast. So that's what I don't, that's what I love most about being my own boss. And then I think the hardest thing about being my own boss is being, um, trying to hold myself accountable for everything, you know, and being responsible for everything. So as I mentioned earlier, like my least favorite thing to do is things like, you know, taxes and bills, which I think is pretty common, you know, but knowing that the buck stops with me, like if I don't renew my business registration, I will not have a business. If I don't like pay my bills, I'm going to lose that vendor, you know? So it's like just holding my feet, my own feet to the fire and having nobody looking over my shoulder saying, Oh, did you remember to pay that bill? Or did you remember to, you know, it's like, it's the buck stops with you. And so you face the consequences if you drop the ball on something, Um, which is, it's a good discipline, but it's also, I think one of the most challenging things um, about, about being your own boss. It's like, it's all on your shoulders at the end of the day. So finding, again, that's why self-care is so important. Mm -hmm. You know, like now that we're in a business that is sustainable and I'm no longer like in the red, like wondering when we're going to make it to break even, like that was like the stuff of, I mean, I would just be up all night, like thinking about all the things I had to do, you know, and now it's like a much more steady state, sustainable business. I don't, that doesn't keep me up at night anymore, but that's why self-care is just so crucial because um, figuring out a way to switch it off um, when you're in a situation where things are stressful for whatever reason or where the future is unknown or you're unclear when you're lacking clarity, um, you know, I think it can be especially daunting to be your own boss and the decisions rest with you. Yeah. How will you know when you've made it? Um, I feel like I've already made it. <laughs> I feel like I made it. Um, I, and how I know that I've made it is that um, I feel really good about the product I'm putting out and the market feedback is telling me that it's good too. I love that. So earlier we were talking about, uh, you mentioned self-actualization. And before we started recording, we were talking about how Um, you know, wow, in this time of life, it's like we've got our basic needs met. We've got homes, we've got happy children, we've got happy spouses, we've got, you know, businesses that are thriving. So like, oh, now I get to discover my purpose in the world. What would you say to people who think that that is folly, that put investing in yourself and, you know, spending time figuring out your purpose is, is, is a luxury, um, you know, when there are hungry people in the world and, you know, how dare you? Do you, what would you say to someone? Oh, I I would say that they've got things backwards, that everything starts from, um, self-awareness. Um, and that when you have self-awareness, like I would question, I would question whether your kids are truly happy, whether your relationship is truly thriving, whether your business is truly thriving as it could in the absence of self-awareness. Because what I found is that until I did that work, none of those things were true. You know, I, on the surface, it looked like we had a successful business and we had some wins and, you know, we were doing okay, but nowhere, it was not sustainable. You know, I feel like when you have um, a self-awareness, then you can, you can show up um, in everything that you're doing with much more clarity and, and, and success is what results. You know, I think Obviously, in the first half of life, so there's this guy named Richard Rohr, who is fantastic. He's wrote a book called Falling Upwards, which is all about how the first half of life is about creating the container, quote unquote, of your life. Like it's more egocentric. It's more about you do need to get your basic needs met on the base of Maslow's hierarchy. So it's important work and that the second half is more spiritual because you've got those basic needs set. So a, so there's definitely something to be said for that. Um, you know, you do need to have those basic needs met. Um and it's, it can be hard to pursue some of the um, self-actualization work when you don't have the space mentally, emotionally, or physically to do that work. Um, I get that. Um, but at the same time, I feel like it's, it's, it's an essential, like for me, it's, it's essential to um, living a life. You know, I, I don't think, um, I, I think you're, I think people and this may be, sound arrogant, I don't know, like, it, I, I think people are missing the boat if they don't do that work, because I think that's the whole point, you know, is to do that work, and part of the point of the first half of life is, yes, to become um, 
stable physically, you know, and have your basic needs met. But part of the point of doing that is to realize that that's not enough, you know, that, that having your needs met at whatever modest level it is, is not enough to bring you joy and to actually have you feel like you've led the life that you were meant to live. That's why a lot of people have midlife crises. It's because they realize all this stuff and status and whatever it is that they've been so busy accumulating. Because yes, you do need that stuff to a certain extent, but that that's not enough. And when you are pursuing all that stuff and you have a relationship and kids, often what you realize is that you've actually not been investing in a relationship and kids the way you need to, which is why I think a lot of people, you know, midlife also end up in divorce or they realize their kids are now teens and are having problems or whatever it is like there's no shortcuts you know and so I feel people who are like oh there's no time for that like no I'm sorry like if you don't make the time it will make you like it will force itself upon you in the form of a health crisis a relationship crisis a job crisis a midlife crisis it will find you if you don't get if you don't find it so you might as well find it and just get ahead of it and 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 spend more of your life um with your shit together and like happy you know <laughs> so you sort of answered my last question um, but I'm going to ask it anyway what is the meaning of life the meaning of life is to to contribute to enlightened consciousness in your own small way, however insignificant. Because as humanity, we're all interconnected and our job here is to take care of our earth and to take care of each other. And it all starts from within each person. And so if you in your own little way, in your business and in your life, in your friendships and family are contributing to enlightened consciousness, and by that mean, I mean, leading with kindness and living from a place of love and accepting responsibility for who you are and what you do and mistakes that you make, then, um, then you're doing your part. You've been listening to This Guy's Legit. This episode was produced by me, Rachel Dorsey, with editing by Drew Dorsey and original music by Taylor Joshua Rankin. This Guy's Legit is executive produced by Bone and Gold. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe to get the next episode automatically. And if you really like what you heard, leave a review. And follow us on Instagram at This Guy's Legit.